Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. Nazia Kazi's Islamophobia, Race and Global Politics is a brilliant and powerful meditation on the intersection and interaction of Islamophobia, racism and U.S. imperial state power. This book seeks to reorient our understanding of Islamophobia from a phenomenon centered on individual attitudes and perceptions of hate to one which is indelibly entrenched to the structural logics of modern state sovereignty and to the long-running history of racism in the U.S. Another distinctive feature of this book lies in its sustained and nuanced analysis of liberal Islamophobia in varied social and political domains that tethers the promise of being categorized as good Muslim to the endorsement and celebration of American exceptionalism. Combining methods and perspectives from anthropology, visual studies, race studies and political studies, this thoroughly interdisciplinary book is also eminently accessible and written beautifully rendering it particularly suitable for courses on modern Islam, race and religion, Islam in America, among many other topics. Here now is my conversation with Professor Nazia Kazi. Hello, Nazia. How are you doing? Hi, I'm good. Thanks for having me. Uh, Thank you very much, Nazia, for your time and for this uh, wonderful and uh, really powerful book that I think will speak to multiple fields uh, and uh, has done some incredibly good work. Uh, we have a tradition on the New Books Network, Nazia, that our first uh, question is always uh, biographical. So I was wondering if you could share with our listeners a bit about uh, your story. How did you become a scholar of anthropology interested in uh, Islam in America, Muslim societies? And then how did you get to write this uh, particular book? Sure. Um, so, you know, growing up a Muslim American, I, I grew up outside of Chicago uh, for much of my life. Um, and my family would take me to events of some large Muslim American organizations, for example, ISNA, the Islamic Society of North America, or CARE, the Council on American Islamic Relations. And I'm talking about, you know, before 9-11. Um, a lot of people think that these organizations became really invested in fighting Islamophobia or representing Muslims in the U.S. after 9-11. Uh, That's actually incorrect. These organizations were deeply involved in what I call representational politics well before September 11th. And when I say representational politics, I mean reminding the mainstream in the U.S., you know, that um, Islam is a religion of peace, that Thomas Jefferson owned a Quran, that, you know, Islam has been in the U.S. and has been contributing to the U.S. These organizations have been making these claims well before September 11th. Um, And these organizations would come to be the ones I focused on in my ethnographic fieldwork. And some of that ethnographic fieldwork did make it into into this book. Um, So then, of course, September 11th, 2001 happens. I was in college at the time. And as I'm sure most of your listeners know, uh, this is when Islamophobia sort of enters the mainstream conversation about race. Um, There's a spike in hate crimes in which both Muslims and those thought to be Muslims, including Sikhs, Hindus, and Arab Christians, are targeted. And of course, after September 11, 2001, uh, the war machine begins 
rattling. Um, and that too, with bipartisan support, it was Democrats, it was Republicans signing up to sort of give uh, blanket support to the war on terror. And at the time, of course, you also had liberals in the U.S. Um, being somewhat vocal against Islamophobia, much the way they were after the Trump election. Um, so there was this sort of liberal defense of Muslims as hardworking Americans, as patriotic, as peace-loving. But what I came to find after September 11, 2001, was that this defense of Muslims was not necessarily extended to Muslim Americans who were politicized. It wasn't extended to Muslims who were critical of that bipartisan support for the war machine. It wasn't extended to Muslims who may have been critical of, um, you know, Israel's occupation of Palestine. And, you know, we see these same fractures today. I mean, you can think just about a couple weeks ago about Ilhan Omar being targeted, not just by Trump's tirades, but also by the liberal media and by several establishment Democrats. And that's not because she's a Muslim woman who wears a hijab. It's because she's a Muslim woman of color who is vocal about U.S. empire and about the class system in the U.S. Um, so for me, as a young person, this inspired a whole bunch of questions that you know, keep me up at night to this day. Questions about how America's role as an imperial force in the world is connected to domestic race politics, specifically white supremacy. And of course, there are, there are lots of good stuff that's been written about this. Um, I, I love the work by Mustafa Bayoumi, by Deepa Kumar, and so many others. But now, you know, I find myself teaching undergrads, you know, in the university classroom, uh, and the tragic fact is, you know, thanks to the educational system being gutted more and more all the time, that the undergrads who find themselves in our classrooms often even have trouble reading and digesting a New York Times op-ed. You know, this is a sad fact. And so what I wanted to do was I wanted to write a book that was super stripped down, really jargon free, but in doing so didn't trade off the crux of the matter, which is that Islamophobia is about power and empire and war and capital. It's not about cultural misunderstandings or religious bigotry. So my goal in writing this book was to kind of capture uh, how we might understand Islamophobia in a way that can be picked up by just about any reader, um, not necessarily an academic audience. Terrific. Uh, so let's begin, Nazia, by talking a bit about the larger uh, conceptual intervention of uh, this book. One of the things that I saw running throughout uh, this book was this idea that you're trying to uh, reorient and have us rethink uh, commonplace and conventional understandings of Islamophobia as a category. I was wondering if you can begin by you talking a bit about uh, that uh, theme of this book. In what ways are you uh, pushing your readers to rethink uh, this uh, category of Islamophobia? Yeah, you know, actually, the original title of the book was uh, going to be Troubling Islamophobia, uh -huh. uh, which after some back and forth with the publishers, uh, we changed our mind. But really, my goal in writing this was, as you're saying, to unsettle the commonplace understandings of what Islamophobia is. Now, I actually think that as a term itself, Islamophobia is a misnomer. It fails to accurately define that which we are trying to define. But because the term now has decades of momentum and it's sort of been institutionalized, we're kind of stuck with it. And here's why I say it's a misnomer. So first of all, think about this term, Islamophobia, right? And it's got this Islam in it. And a commonplace assumption is that what Islamophobia is, is religious intolerance. Um, and what 
we need to do is move toward understanding Islamophobia as a systemic racial project. Um, it is not about religious misunderstanding, and its solution is not interfaith dialogue. In fact, there's I offer a critique in this book as well as in other work um, of mine about the very notion of interfaith, quote-unquote, interfaith dialogue. Um, so first I want to sort of argue that we should reframe Islamophobia as not a, 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 you know, a religious intolerance or bigotry against people of a religious group, but instead about a project of white supremacy and racism. Second of all, Islamophobia is often thought of as this sort of vitriol, this violence that's experienced by Muslims. And that's really inaccurate too. Um, okay, so for example... We might say that Trump is an Islamophobe, and certainly one of his first actions in office was, you know, the Muslim ban, um, and it was what he campaigned on. And we might understand Trump as an Islamophobe. He has deployed Islamophobic rhetoric time and again. But is he Islamophobic when he's sword dancing with the Saudi royal family? And, and, and when we start to think in those terms, we begin to see that what Islamophobia might better be understood as is a dividing up of the world's Muslims um, by the dictates of global power, right? And this is what Islamophobia and all forms of racism have always been, have been dividing up racialized people into good and bad in instrumental terms, you know? So, for instance, the FBI post 9-11 waged this all out war of, you know, surveillance and policing of Muslim Americans. That wouldn't have been possible without the recruiting of certain Muslim Americans to help serve in that project. So what I try to offer a little bit of in this book and more in depth in some of my other, um, uh, other work is that we have to be really careful in thinking about who gets to fall on which side of that dividing line when we're talking about Islamophobia. And another way we might think of Islamophobia as a misnomer is about thinking about the non-Muslims who have been impacted by what we call Islamophobia. For instance, you know, we are seeing right now this crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border. And if you trace the history of this, you see that the Department of Homeland Security um, is which now includes ICE, right, which includes immigration, uh, is a product of the post-9-11 climate of fear of a terrorist attack, a.k.a. a Muslim terrorist attack. And so the fear of Muslims was mobilized to militarize the border, leading to the border crisis that we see today. And it was just a few months ago that Donald Trump tweeted, you know, border patrol agents are finding prayer rugs <laughs> near the border. So the implication is, oh, Muslims might be sneaking across the border, therefore all the violence that's happening there is, is in good measure. It's to keep us safe. So who bears the brunt of that Islamophobia? Well, it's Latin American migrants. Um, you know, years ago, there was this false story circulating in the media about ISIS having covert cells in Mexico. Again, the implication being that fear of Muslims entering the country should motivate us, um, you know, enforcing this anti-immigrant um, uh, militarized border politics. So those are the main ways that I sort of wanted to reframe our understanding of Islamophobia in this book. Now, one of the uh, central arguments that you make throughout the book, uh, which I think is a really interesting point about connecting Islamophobia to the question of race. And in the early segments of the book, one of the key categories through which you do that in one specific chapter, in fact, is through this idea of what you call hyper visibility. Uh, and I think that, by the way, another, is another really uh, uh, 
useful feature of this book that you really uh, build on some very uh, important uh, categories and really give the reader a very good sense of how those categories do the conceptual work for you. Uh, so I was wondering if you could speak a bit about this category, hypervisibility, and uh, what does that entail? And uh, through that, how do you connect race to Islamophobia? Yeah. Um, so in the work of Nadine Neighbor and Amani Jamal, we find this, um, the, the introduction of this notion of Arab Americans becoming hyper visible in response to, to, you know, various politics. And I'm, I'm drawing from that example to talk about Islamophobia here. And of course, we might we might uh, underscore the fact that racialized people have always been, quote unquote, hyper visible. And what I mean by that is I mean um, the subject of various forms of scrutiny, both institutional, uh, written into law, and sort of everyday, commonplace, hyper visible scrutiny. So, for instance, if we were to think about uh, the Black Panther Party in the U.S., heavily, heavily surveilled, surveilled and infiltrated to the point of their destruction, right? Uh, Malcolm X, uh, Black Muslim himself, surveilled to the point of extreme paranoia, right? And, and there have been entire books written based on the FBI files that were kept on Malcolm X. So there we're talking about this institutional hypervisibility, the ways in which um, it is written into power to keep watch over racialized populations. Um, and then that is coupled with this everyday kind of sociocultural hypervisibility. You know, this means like the ways your neighbor is curious about you, um, the ways maybe Hollywood films might be obsessed with you. You know, I, 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 you know, I'm sure anyone who has walked into a bookstore like a Barnes and Noble has seen, um, fictional novels just on display that feature, you know, a woman with a veil on her face. There's just an abundance of that. There's this cultural curiosity, almost an obsession, a fascination with the Muslim, right? And so we see that, and that is a driving force of Islamophobia. I give the example in the book of a, of a box of cookies that was delivered by Amazon that happened to have some Arabic because they're date filled cookies had some Arabic on the box and somebody called the police because this was really suspicious and a SWAT team showed up and all the local businesses were including a daycare were shut down um, for something so simple. And it was this, the hyper visibility of this Arabic, you know, text on the box that just signaled something It signaled danger. Um, and so we see the hypervisibility of Muslims uh, as coupled with this type of Islamophobia, you know. And when I was doing my ethnographic fieldwork with members of these large Muslim American organizations, time and again, I would find people saying things like, you know, I always hold the door open for everyone in public. I might be the only Muslim person they ever see. You know, I'm visibly Muslim. I wear a hijab. So I always... If I stop at a stop sign, I'll let the other person go first. You know, this sense of being on your best behavior because you know you're being watched. I mean, the really interesting thing about this, though, is that it doesn't work. <laughs> you're not going to fight Islamophobia by what I say is leveraging this hypervisibility that's using the spotlight um, to project, you know, the best face for Muslim Americans. And instead, what it actually does is it puts an additional burden on Muslim Americans or on people of color in general to perform a certain way. It, it kind of feeds into the racist or in this case, Islamophobic um, visibility regime that we're talking about. Now, let's return to uh, one of the other central arguments that you talked about a bit earlier about reorienting our understanding of Islamophobia. One of the key arguments that you make uh, throughout the book is to begin to think about Islamophobia as not something which is about individual perspectives, uh, but is much more systemic. 
Uh, I was wondering if you could connect that argument to another very interesting uh, theme throughout this book, which is the intimacy between conventionally understood understandings of Islamophobia and then liberal Islamophobia. Uh, I was wondering if you could connect those two threads uh, uh, in this book uh, in terms of uh, how you are uh, reorienting and rethinking the understanding or understanding of Islamophobia. Sure. And this can be said of how we talk about race in general in the U.S., which is we tend to understand it as a matter of individual prejudice. In fact, I used to do this thing in my race and ethnicity class with undergrads that have them list out, you know, how they would define racism, what racism looks like. And it was always like, they would always list things that located racism in the heart and mind of an individual. So they would write things like having, you know, bad attitudes about a you know, people of a different race than you, being afraid of people of a different um, racial background, uh, you know, acting prejudicially. It always located things within the individual. So racism is commonly understood in this way as an act of individualized bigotry and personal prejudice. Uh, never in, you know, a decade of teaching did a student write um, the likelihood that your water is poisoned with lead, the likelihood that you will be incarcerated for a low-level offense. Um, these were not, you know, the likelihood that you will um, attend an Ivy League institution, which these are all racialized factors. We don't understand, though, race in these terms in the U.S. And the same is true of Islamophobia, right? But what we see in these Muslim American responses to Islamophobia is quite often this attempt to fight Islamophobia by appealing to these individual attitudes and personal bigotries. Um, I'm reminded of, for example, when Linda Sarsour used the word jihad, um, which has several meanings, right? Can most commonly be understood as like a personal struggle. Uh, but in the U.S., especially post 9-11, um, and I guess post 1979, has come to mean for many Americans, quote unquote, armed struggle or holy war. Well, Linda Sarsour calls for people to carry out a jihad against Trump, and it leads to this huge, just you know, backlash against her. Is she calling for an armed insurrection? And a lot of people stepped in to defend her and say, "No, jihad can mean just a struggle toward justice, right?" Well, the point is, I mean, Muslims have been writing these op-eds and trying to explain what jihad means to them for decades now. It kind of doesn't matter, though. That, that defense hasn't landed well. It hasn't changed the minds of Islamophobes, right? Similarly, we could think about how Muslim Americans, these organizations that I have studied, have offered ample evidence to counter the claim that Muslim women are somehow uniquely and excessively oppressed. Um, Muslim organizations have offered descriptions of what Muslims do in Ramadan or in verses of, about verses of the Quran that are you know, oriented around peace. Um, and none of these justifications, none of these explanations have made a lot of headway in fighting Islamophobia. These cultural, religious explanations, you might even call them defenses of who Muslims are to the mainstream, they haven't worked, you know, and they haven't worked in spite of decades of cultural production on the part of defensive Muslim Americans. And the reason is this, right? It, it rests on this flawed assumption, this flawed assumption that what Islamophobia is, is a form of ignorance. The flawed assumption that Islamophobia is a lack of understanding. You know, a lot of people will say, you know, a lot of Muslims, a lot of Americans have not met a Muslim and that's why they're Islamophobic. Well, you know, sure, that's true. There are a lot of people in the States who have 
extremely Islamophobic views in spite of never having um, met a Muslim. In fact, there's research that shows that those state um, uh, state governments that have the highest number of anti-Sharia legislation, for instance, actually have the lowest number of Muslims. So there's something there. But we can't just stop the analysis there. I mean, think about it. Every single person in New York City has intimately known a Muslim person if they've been to a doctor or a food cart or taken a taxi or checked in a bag at the airport. And that certainly didn't stop Muslims from being rounded up across New York City and thrown into detention centers indefinitely after 9-11. So we're not talking about a lack of familiarity with who Muslims are as the core of the problem. It's clearly something much bigger than that. One of the examples I give in the book is I was teaching this workshop once, and I started by asking the attendees of this workshop, how many of you have heard the phrase, Islam is a religion of peace? And everybody in the room's hand went up. You know, And this is a one-liner that I think came out of this this cultural production, these representational politics that I'm talking about, the the understanding that Islam is a religion of peace. It's almost like a bumper sticker slogan. Okay, then I asked that same room, how many of you have heard about the kill list established under the Obama presidency, which gives the executive office, the office of the presidency, so that's now Donald Trump, remarkable powers to carry out extrajudicial assassinations of Muslims. And nobody raised their hands. Right. And so I find it to be very interesting that there has been this exorbitant amount of representational explanation of who Muslims are. And then very little in the way of, you know, a public discussion about the geopolitics that have shaped the relations between what we might call, quote unquote, the West or the Muslim world. And I've noticed this in the classroom. You know, when you stick to these kind of trite, liberal uh, cliches about, diversity and cultural understanding and inclusion, uh, students are frankly bored of hearing about it. When you start talking about the violent histories that have given rise to um, racial divisions and systemic inequality, my young students actually start to listen. So I think what I'm trying to offer there is a conversation about Islamophobia that tries to be you know, faithful to the systemic roots of Islamophobia itself. Nazia, you begin uh, chapter six of your book by talking about uh, the speech by Khizr Khan, uh, the father of Humayun Khan, uh, the soldier who was killed in Iraq, uh, fighting for the U.S. Army at the uh, Democratic National Convention in 2016. Uh, share with our listeners a bit what you found problematic about the reception uh, of the speech and how it connects to the larger theme that you already were talking about now uh, of this uh, problem with the category of good Muslims or how good Muslims are separated uh, from uh, the bad Muslims and how that sort of uh, feeds into a larger liberal narrative of uh, Islamophobia. Uh, t- uh, walk us through uh, some moments of that uh, chapter. Sure. Uh, you know, I think it's really important uh, to be aware of just how militaristic we are in the U.S. as a society, right? We are steeped in militarism. And just a couple of days ago, I was watching the uh, Democratic debates, you know, and um, they had a military tribute at the beginning with, you know, uh, decorated soldiers marching through with a drum beat and 
the salute and the star spangled banner. And it looked kind of like a, the beginning of a football game, which raises the question as to why even football games look like that. So steeped in the saluting of the troops. And, you know, at football games, you have like planes flying over to, to, to display Air Force um, weaponry. We are a society steeped in just a kind of taken for granted sort of militarism. You know, you go to a gas station, there's a jar out asking you to support the troops. And you can drop money in that jar, but you're already dropping a whole bunch of money in that jar just by paying taxes. You know, I mean, when we look at this upcoming presidential election, we see both Tulsi Gabbard and Pete Buttigieg talking about their proud record as veterans. Um, America is a, a bellicose country. Bellicosity, uh, a, a, a militarism is patriotic. Right. And so it is in this context that we saw at the 2016 DNCs, which were right here in uh, where I live in Philadelphia, uh, Kizer Khan, a Muslim man who who's from a gold star family. His son died in Iraq, um, taking the stage and urging people to support Hillary Clinton because Donald Trump doesn't even understand that Muslims died in that war in Iraq, that Muslims like his son died in that war in Iraq. And it was much like something that we saw from Colin Powell years before. Now, Colin Powell said, in defense of Barack Obama, right? And so when Barack Obama was running for president the first time around, there were these accusations that he was a Muslim. And Colin Powell said, well, so what if he is a Muslim? You know, I was at Arlington Cemetery, and I saw the headstone of a Muslim soldier there. So if if there are Muslims who are dying in our wars, then there should be Muslims who are allowed to run for president. And it's it's this perverse way in which participation in the U.S.'s project of militarism and empire building is used as a kind of legitimizing factor, as a way to say that, you know, whether it's Muslims, whether it's African-Americans, uh, whether it's immigrants, that they, part, they, they too participate in war making. So therefore, they are American. Right. And. We, we, we have to acknowledge that this war machine in the U.S. is not the product of Trump or Bush or any one political party. It is a deeply bipartisan war machine. Um, the Democrats have always given Trump what he asks for in terms of his authorization for defense spending, sometimes exceeding it by billions of dollars. Um, uh, you know, the um, uh, media commentator Fareed Zakaria said that Trump became presidential to him when he launched missiles in Syria. So there's nothing more American than um, apple pie and war making, right? So it's in this context that Kizer Khan takes the stage at the DNC and um, uses his son's death as a legitimizing factor for Muslims in the U.S. See, we too die in these wars. Now, interestingly, Ben Norton has written about how Kizer Khan has actually been critical of the U.S. military in other interviews, and that didn't get as much media attention as his patriotic display at the DNC that year. And there's a long history of people of color often appealing to militarism as a way to legitimize themselves. Um, you know, when the DREAM Act uh, was being debated years and years ago, so there, there was this path to citizenship for undocumented immigrants that was being offered. And the, the way it was written was, you know, Education, like going to college or military service, could be a pathway to citizenship 
for undocumented immigrants. While education is not really affordable and accessible, and when it is, it beholds you via student loans to the banks for basically the rest of your life. But the military is a way to get a lot of your economic needs met, and in, the, in, and in this instance, as a way to get an actual pathway to legal citizenship. Um, you know, so there's this peculiar phenomenon at the intersection of race and service in the U.S. military apparatus. Um, you know, uh, there's a really perverse and disturbing history of African-American men being lynched for walking around in their military uniforms. Um, you know, so I think it's, it's anthropologically very interesting to look at that intersection of race and militarism. Um, you know, to be in legitimate in the U.S. is to stand in service of the project of empire, which is sort of what I was saying earlier. The post 9-11 liberal inclusion and celebration of Muslims did not include those Muslims who wanted to point to the most egregious uh, manifestations of American militarism. Um, so I, I kind of argue that we ought not to take this for granted. We ought to problematize and really scrutinize what is at stake in these invocations of um, Muslim participation in American militarism. Now, continuing with this theme, uh, now as in the latter half of your book, you spend quite a bit of time in trying to argue that, uh, you know, in thinking about the narrative and career of Islamophobia uh, in the U.S. and a global context, uh, it is uh, not very helpful to exclusively focus on uh, the recent uh, uh, ascent of uh, Donald Trump and to uh, sort of uh, think of this as some kind of uh, an exceptional uh, uh, break uh, from the past, but to rather think about the continuities uh, of uh, uh, you know Trump and, and what came before him and so on. Uh, tell us a bit about that part of your argument, of your focus on the continuities, not to undermine the sort of uh, exceptional uh, features of the Trump presidency either or of his person, but to rather not uh, uh, think about this as some kind of an exceptional uh, break from the past either. Can you tell us a bit about uh, that uh, part of your argument? Yeah, you know, um, I just heard this morning a a news story that, you know, I'm, I'm sure many of your listeners heard about Reagan and Nixon laughing about how people from Africa are monkeys. Okay, so... One of the things I always tell my students is that when we talk about race, uh, we have to very diligently resist the urge to regard as an anomaly that which is foundational. You know, I remember when um, the Sikh Gurdwara in Wisconsin uh, suffered a violent massacre by a white armed white supremacist. You turned on the news and everyone was talking about how un-American this was. And I wasn't sure which version of American history someone would read to call that un-American. I open up my wallet and see Andrew Jackson on the $20 bill. I mean, there's um, a, a kind of common sense racism that is just embedded in, in America, right? It's stitched into our red, white, and blue. Um, and, and I think one of the dangers, one of the many dangers of the Trump presidency is that people are coming to regard Donald Trump's egregious and kind of buffoonish racism as an anomaly, when actually what it is, is a very natural outgrowth of the racial climate that has been part of America, foundationally. I mean, do we really believe that it's un-American when a white nationalist armed to the teeth carries out a massacre at a Sikh temple? Do we actually believe it's un-American when the U.S. president tells a Somali Muslim elected official to go back to her country? And if we do believe those things to be un-American, then which version, again, of American history 
have we been reading? And I think this is one of the dangers of the Trump effect, you know, and I, I remember it looking very similar in the Bush years because Bush, you know, I'm sure a lot of us remember he was good comic relief, you know, like he, 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 he offered uh, just a lot of material to, to comedians and had, you know, a, a, a speaking style and a grammatical style that was just kind of oafish and buffoonish. And Obama seemed far more polished and kind of presidential, quote unquote, um, in, in, in the aftermath of the Bush era. Well, okay, but what did we see in the Obama era? We, we saw a continuation of anti-immigrant policies. We saw a continuation of pro-Wall Street policies. We saw a continuation, perhaps even an expansion of a militaristic pro-war regime. But because he didn't act a clown quite the same way Bush did, it was he kind of got a pass. And so with Trump, we see the same thing happening. I'm sure everybody is still trying to figure out what Kovefe meant um, and, you know, about the Twitter tirades at 2 a.m. But uh, Arundhati Roy has said, you know, if we focus on Trump, we resist ignoring the system that produced him. And I think that's a really important thing for us to be um, to be careful about. So, for instance, the Islamophobia of Trump. Well, most obviously embodied in the Muslim ban, the travel ban, which was one of his first actions as president to write this executive order, um, was deeply troubling. And we saw thousands of people take to airports to protest this just grotesque act of Islamophobia. But I didn't see thousands of people um, protesting on the streets in the same way under the National Security Entry Exit Registry System post 9-11, which was basically a soft precursor to the travel ban. You know, I didn't see the same type of protest for the bipartisan, so Democrat and Republican support for the USA Patriot Act. We certainly didn't see this kind of resistance for the Obama era kill law, right? Or the fact that adult Muslim men are automatically labeled enemy combatants because of this Obama era legislation. Um, We haven't seen that kind of massive uprising for the fact that the Abu Ghraib torture scandal has been all but erased from our collective memory because uh, Muslim bodies simply don't count. So I think there's a real danger in, you know, spending our energies critiquing one individual or one administration or even taking a ton of pleasure out of the comic relief that he might provide. Because what we end up doing is overlooking the, the, the factors that created, that produced him. Now, as we come uh, towards the end of our time, uh, Nazia, uh, I was wondering if I could ask you a question which uh, uh, takes a step back from the specific themes of the book and uh, have, has you think, uh, talk more about the uh, larger uh, sort of uh, uh, methodological apparatus of the book. I was really struck that this book is thoroughly uh, multidisciplinary, uh, you know, drawing perspectives from anthropology, visual studies, the study of race and so on. Um, I was wondering if you could speak a bit about how you went about the planning, uh, the conceptual planning and execution of this book. And I think that would be really uh, useful for uh, budding writers and so on. And also to have you talk a bit about what you would like, uh, you know, scholars of the humanities and humanistic social sciences to take away as the larger uh, takeaway point uh, of uh, of this particular project. Well, you know, I, I, I think... Um... I'm sure many of your listeners know that your first book is usually expected to be your quote unquote, your dissertation book. And that book project for me was well underway. And it was an ethnography of Muslim American, American organizational 
uh, responses to September 11th and the representational practices uh, that they used and sort of a critique of neoliberal multiculturalism, etc. And that book was well underway when the Trump election victory happened. And it seemed like so many of the things that preoccupy me in both my uh, research and my, you know, community organizing goals seem to just be abundantly present in the world around me. Um, And I became a little suspicious about whether it was worth my time and energy to write that academic monograph at that time. Um, And, you know, I think that something that would have been read by other people who study Islamophobia, by graduate students, perhaps by Americanist anthropologists, was perhaps less critical at that moment than something that has a much wider reach. Um, You know, I've heard of folks using this in their social studies teachers using the book that I've written in their their classes for seniors in high school. Um, a lot of community colleges are using it. Um, a lot of people I know have given the book to their Hindu American dad to read. And that is really um, exciting to me because I teach this class at Stockton called Race and Islam in the U.S. And I have seen firsthand teaching this class now for five years um, just how little our young people know not just about like 9-11 and the war on terror, but about the history of American racism in general. I find it really ironic that we have branded 9-11 as hashtag never forget, because actually what does surround 9-11 is a deep climate of forgetfulness. Um, A lot of my students think Saddam Hussein did 9-11. A lot of my students think Osama bin Laden was from Iraq. Um, So there's a lot of students think ISIS, which didn't exist at the time, did 9-11. So these, you know, and this isn't about, you know, any individual failing on the part of these students. These are systemic problems that we're looking at. And I wanted to write something inspired by that, right? So seeing that um, the students at this, institution, which is a predominantly white institution I teach at, A, they are deeply forgetful about the racial politics of Islamophobia and race politics in general, but also that they're frankly exhausted about liberal talking points about race, you know, talking points like microaggressions and white privilege just do not land very well. But when you start talking about the material practices of race, for instance, how much Britain enriched itself through Iranian oil, or how then the CIA swept in and toppled that very Iranian government, or about how the detention center at Guantanamo was built deliberately so that the U.S. could bypass its own and international laws about the treatment of prisoners. When you start talking about these things, our our students start to listen. And that, for me, is really important. I mean, when it comes to immigration, for instance, um, people are sick of hearing that America is a quote unquote land of immigrants or that America is enriched by immigrants. That doesn't land very well. But when you start talking about what Juan Gonzalez writes in Harvest of Empire, which is that the very countries from which people that, that people migrate to from the U.S. to the U.S. from are the very countries that the U.S. has dominated and destabilized economically and militarily. You start teaching students about the dirty wars in Latin America and then connecting it to the waves of migration from places like El Salvador and Nicaragua. 
And then these very students who are bored of hearing about microaggressions and white privilege, they actually start to listen. And so for me, that was sort of the motivation of this book, to write something that could be accessible in those ways. And that while it was sort of stripped down and made free of academic jargon, it didn't disrespect the reader. It, it assumed that the reader could show up to these larger conversations about global politics and about empire. So as we're coming to the end of our time, Nazi, could you share with our listeners what you're thinking as the next uh, project? Sure. So, um, I, I, you know, just a few days ago, Bob Mueller was testifying about his report. And I find it to be so interesting that in the context of Russiagate, Robert Mueller, former FBI head, has been called upon to be the sort of vanguard of democracy. And for those of us who remember what happened after September 11th, we know that he headed an FBI that unleashed a violent witch hunt on Muslim migrants, um, deeply anti-democratic, and now he's somehow the protector of democracy. Okay, well, when Gina Haspel was uh, nominated to be CIA head, a huge controversy erupted because of her relationship to the CIA's use of torture. Well, anyone who's even briefly studied the history of the CIA knows that it has been all about torture since, well, since its founding, in addition to being about toppling democratic governments around the world. So what I'm currently working on is something about, we might call it the Islamophobia of intelligence, the Islamophobia of intelligence agencies. And I'm trying to sort of sketch out a long history of CIA and FBI relations to the, we might call it the Muslim world, quote unquote, that have reinforced America's corrosive power. And here, once again, we see that Islamophobia isn't about anti-Muslim violence. It's about a systematic dividing up of Muslims according to the dictates of global power. Um, so, you know, I think in the age of Trump, again, many have forgotten the overt and covert nature of these organizations, these organizations who have been tasked with protecting some of the most uh, offensive and violent systems of power. So I already have a lot of ethnographic information from the congregants of these organizations that I studied responding to how they feel about the state or perhaps the deep state. In fact, many heads of these Muslim American organizations have worked closely with the FBI, for instance, attending its Citizens Academy or accepting CVE or countering violent extremism funding in ways that ends up being actually quite Islamophobic. So there are divisions about this in Muslim American spaces, about how Muslim Americans ought to relate to the state or to law enforcement or to intelligence agencies specifically. So I think this book will allow me to sketch out some of that history, but also talk about what it means, what it has meant ethnographically for Muslim Americans to be grappling with their varied uh, notions about how to relate to the state itself. And also, I'm working on a reader on Islamophobia, an edited volume, which, much like my first book, is meant to be accessible to a very intro-level audience. It might be sort of thought of as the textbook on Islamophobia, U.S. Islamophobia specifically. So that's what I have cooking right now. Islamophobia, Race and Global Politics by Nazia Kazi, published by Robin and Littlefield Press in 2019. Uh, thank you so much, Nazia, for this uh, incredible uh, book, for giving us so much to think about uh, and uh, for your time today for this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So this was my conversation with Professor Nazia Kazi about her wonderful new book. I hope you enjoyed this episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. And I hope that you will also join us next time for another new episode of your favorite podcast, 
New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Thank you.